Hello, and welcome to episode 158 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Frank Gogol, comics writer and creator of Grief, Dead End Kids, No Heroin, and the upcoming Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job. Frank, uh, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I believe this is your, your third time, but for anybody who wouldn't have listened to those first two episodes, could you give us a brief uh, bio about yourself before we talk uh, more about these comics? Yeah, sure. Of course I can. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me back. Uh, this year is, uh, I think it's, I've been making comics for about four and a half years and I've been slowly working my way towards being sort of the reigning champ for appearances on different podcasts. Mm -hmm. And you know, at three, I got to be crawling up on, on the top 10 for you by now. So I'm just going to keep coming back on as long as you'll have me. Yeah. Um, you are actually, you're in pretty good company. You're, you're tied with uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson and uh, uh, Jordan Clark, who recently did a couple of issues of, uh, of Aquaman. So you're in, you're in some good company there. That is good company. I, I, I love Philip's work so much, so much. Um, but for anyone who's a first time listener to an episode featuring me, I am Frank Ogle. As, as Matt said, I am the writer of the Ringo Award nominated collection Grief, um, the 2019 indie hit series Dead End Kids. This year's uh, seemingly indie hit series, No Heroin, which is about to wrap up its run as we record this podcast. And then uh, upcoming, as Matt said, I've got the, uh, the sequel to Dead End Kids, uh, Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job. Uh, like I said, I've been writing comics for four and a half years, and uh, I finally feel like I'm not like a, a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have uh, do you have like an elevator pitch um, already sort of set up for for the suburban job? You know, it, I, I do and I don't. Um, and, and I find that and this is kind of like a air quotes pro tip. But like the more you talk about the thing, uh, the, the more you kind of refine it and pull it back. Um, but uh, after talking about it, uh, I think it's probably about the 20th podcast I've recorded. So uh at, at this point, this is what it sounds like. Uh, Dead End Kids, the suburban job is the story of three kids in 2008 who are all the relatives or loved ones of people who died on or because of 9-11. Uh, we've got three brand new characters for the series. Uh, Tori, who is the uh, daughter of a first responder who died on the scene at Ground Zero on 9-11. Brian, who is the brother of an army soldier who was killed in Afghanistan after the, the tragic events of 9-11. And then Amna, who's a young Pakistani-American woman who is dealing with sort of the exacerbated racial tensions that um, evolved out of 9-11. Uh, so it's a new cast uh, and a new setting uh, and uh, a new crime. Uh, this book, The Suburban Job, as, as the title suggests, is a heist book. Uh, so the first volume was a murder mystery. This book is a heist book. Uh, so if you like Dead End Kids, the, the first volume, it's, it's got that same feel and, and, and kind of atmosphere as the first book, you know, coming of age, crime. Uh, but brand new entry point, new cast, new crime, uh, and a different different kind of angle into it. Very nice. So um, at what point was the 9-11 aspect uh, part of the of the story? Uh, yeah, in terms of like the creative process or in terms of the timeline of the narrative? Uh, sort of like the creative uh, process, you know, you sitting down, um, you know, you, you wrapped up Dead End Kids uh, a little while ago. So I'm assuming, um, you know, you're working on some of your other projects, but you probably had some ideas 
of where you wanted the series to go. And at some point you, you brought that sort of 9-11 marker in to, to, to use it as a, as, a, as a story point. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, around the time Dead End Kids, in the first volume, number one, came out last July, August. Uh, it got delayed a week, so I think it ended up coming out in August. Um, right, right after it came out, right before the second one came out, uh, SourcePoint Press came to me and they said, you know, the, the book's performing really well, way better than, you know, sort of projected. Uh, I think it ended up at the time being the, the best-selling title they had ever released. Um, and they said, you know, if you want to, if you want to do more of this, we would absolutely publish it. You just, just say the word and which is always a great thing to hear from a publisher. I have a really great relationship with them. And you know, that's just kind of like a, a moment that, that is proof of that. Uh, so they, they asked me if I wanted to do more and, and I thought about it for a while and mind you at the time, no, no, uh, dead end kids was coming out and it was a much bigger hit than I expected and, and was Kind of, kind of took me by surprise and threw me off a lot. Like it was a lot of trial by fire those couple of months. Um, while at the same time I was writing and working on project managing the production for No Heroin, which is coming out this year. Um, and I didn't have a story. Um, for anyone who read the first volume, you, when you get to the end of it, you kind of, it kind of writes itself into a corner um, that would make it a little bit hard to go back into it without kind of taking away from the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really have an angle in. I was hip deep in something else, and and I was kind of overwhelmed by the success of the first volume. And, and I didn't really, I honestly really didn't want to. Um, but I don't like to like close doors on myself just in case I change my mind or, or circumstances. You know, the wind shifts. Um, so I told them maybe, like a real soft maybe, um, and that was sort of good enough for them. Uh, no heroin was on the the schedule already, and you know we had plenty of time to figure it out. Um, and then uh, last winter, I kind of was able to decompress a little bit after the craze from Dead and Kids Volume 1 died down and, and the holidays hit and, and you know, my wedding was in the rear view. I, I got married right in the middle of Dead and Kids, which was just, just made it that much better. Um, but uh, at, at some point I sat down and I said, all right, if I was going to tell this story, like, what would the things I need be? Uh, like for me to be happy to tell another story. Um, and I came up with like a list of kind of like pillars that I thought would, would make for a good story that I would be proud of. Uh, one of them was I had to find like the right emotional engine for the story, like the right angle in to create and build characters that I cared about that I would want to continue to write, you know, a whole mini series about and that uh, readers can really connect with. Um, one of my big story sort of storytelling philosophies is that readers will come to a book for cool art and, and a great concept, but they'll come back to issues two, three, four, 100, you know, 200 for characters that they love and that they can relate to. So it's always really important to me to, to build out a really good cast with, with a strong sort of emotional core to it that, that people can really connect with. Um, so that was number one. And then the other one was like, I needed to find <clears throat> sort of the, the right way to tell the story. And, and for me, that ended up being taking sort of a, a true detective approach to the franchise. Now that I, I guess we can call it a franchise now because there's multiple entries into it or, or saga or series. Um, so we, you know, just like true detective, it's a crime story. It's got a specific kind of feel to it and an atmosphere to it but each entry is going to be set in a different time period with a different cast of characters. 
dealing with a different kind of crime and uh and that that kind of gave me the the freshness i needed to, to go back into it without making it feel redundant um so so all that was kind of like the 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 basis for it and like what i where my mind was going into it but i really needed that that strong emotional element um <clears throat> like the, the first volume for me is is generally speaking about childhood trauma. And I think that's part of what, why it spoke to so many people and why, why people dug it is because we all sort of go through things as kids that we're not prepared to go through and, and not equipped to go through. And, and that really resonates. That's why movies like Stand By Me and, and books like Stephen King's It really do speak to people. And, and I believe that. Um, <clears throat> but I, I needed to find like what that angle in. And, and it was sometime last winter, I was, I was talking to my wife um, and I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I'm about three and a half years older than my wife. She grew up on the West Coast in San Francisco in a city I grew up in a really poor beach town. Like we couldn't really have had two more different backgrounds. And then when you look at sort of the events of 9-11 through the different lenses of our lives, as we, she and I have discussed countless times over the years because it's so ingrained in our lives as Americans, um, just realizing that there's such a different perspective, you know, from somebody who lived on a different coast and then me being somebody who grew up on a, in a beach town that looked north to lower Manhattan and on a clear day, you could see the twin towers. Like it was yeah, just total culture shock. Mm -hmm. um, and, and having those conversations with her really made me realize just what a, like a, a, time locked kind of milestone moment in American history that is for everyone like and and how much it affects every aspect of our lives to this day I mean like you know from the way we fly to the the laws that we live under to the way we treat other people to you know the things we're, we're scared of and the things we're proud of like it really just set a tone for an entire segment of, of American history. And, and we're kind of going through something a little bit similar to that right now with the, the COVID crisis. I think that we'll see this really set a tone for the next 20 years. Um, but, you know, just thinking on it, like that was something, an event that I really felt like we don't talk about enough still almost 20 years later. And that really could potentially speak to anyone who picked up this book because I even I even know people who live outside the US and I have friends in Canada and Mexico and, and, and Europe who who understand like the weight of that day and and have had ripple effects come out and touch their countries as a result um so it's that was sort of the thing for me like you know I'm always looking for a, an angle to to speak about something like addiction or childhood trauma or you know sort of generational shared trauma now <clears throat> that can speak to a lot of different people and give me something to write about uh so that's the long answer yeah no that's i actually reading it uh i i got a preview copy and i read it um and i, I thought i was like i wonder um uh the, for the decision for for 9/11 to to be an aspect of the story and that answer that you gave makes a lot of sense because uh, you know probably for um, depending on your age like the 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 moment for your parents might have been like the, the 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 Kennedy assassination but for a lot of people you know in in our age range it's 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 9/11 and we all sort of had different experiences, but we all can sort of relate to uh, that day and then sort of the days that came after it. 
Um, and you said a lot about like building character and, and you do that really early on. And I think you do that in a really interesting way. You know, a lot of times in comics is sort of the rule is uh, uh, show don't tell. And I thought one way that you got us into these characters really well is in the first couple of, of pages, you know, as kids, you know, we all spend a lot of time just sort of in our room with, with our bedrooms, with our thoughts. And it's sort of the, the, our bedrooms were like um, sort of expressions of ourselves. So me reading these first couple of pages, the, 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 the characters sitting in their bedroom, I, I learned a lot about them. Was that, was that something that you set, um, set out to, to do pretty early on? For sure. Um, so in the, the first volume, we did something, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, really similar, uh, almost, I think, on the, the same pages, um, where we have these sort of one-page vignettes where you get to know Murphy and uh, Amanda and Tank and Ben in the first volume. And, and um, <clears throat> I, I stole that from Jeff Lemire, if I'm being completely honest. Um, it's a, a storytelling strategy he used in Plutonia uh, mm -hmm. to introduce the kids, which is another great coming-of-age comic. Uh, that's superhero and Jeff Lemire, so everyone should go read it. <clears throat> but uh, uh, he did something similar to that, and I just kind of aped it and, and did my own version of it. Um, a lot of the credit goes to Nanad, the, the artist, Nanad Svitikan, and he really, a lot of the background elements uh, were, were his input. Like, I try not to script too heavily and over-direct, and kind of especially when I work with Nanad, because we have such a history. Um, <clears throat> so I just trust him to, uh, you know, just get things right. Uh, but like, yeah, uh, I, I play sort of a, a fact checker role in that for, for him. He's, he's Eastern European. Uh, so some of his America pop culture isn't a hundred percent. Uh, so like in, in, uh, Brian's room, for example, in this, in this series, there's a Nets poster. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, Nanette had drawn a, a Brooklyn Nets poster mm -hmm. and 2008, the, the Nets were still in New Jersey. So we had to you know tweak the poster. It's just little things like that. Um, but I, I like these kind of one page, two page introductions to the kids. Cause it really, yeah, I think they're almost entirely silent this time around. Like Tori's listening to a voicemail. She's got no dialogue. And I think Amna's got a, a there's, there's some people speaking around her, but generally our, our kids aren't speaking. Um, but I like that you still in just a handful of images, like get introduced to the character, figure it out, you know, as a reader, what they're going through. And yeah, you walk away from those little two page vignettes feeling like you, you know what they're about and, and a little bit connected to them. And, you know, knowing that all the, the stuff they're going through is tied to the larger, you know, in, in the past of the story event of 9-11, really. Just, I feel like there's a lot of gravitas to that. And, and it, it kind of quickly and efficiently introduces the cast, lets you know what they're about, and kind of gets the ball rolling. Um, there's also, like, some little stupid artificial stuff I did in there. Like, each kid vignette in the first volume is one page. So I made each kid vignette in this volume two pages because it's the sequel. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's not really a craft thing. That's just me laughing at myself. Well, definitely, if you're going to sort of lean on your influences and take pieces of, uh, you know, other uh, stories, uh, Jeff Lemire is definitely a great one to take. Uh, I think another great thing you did with this is there's a point when uh, our characters sort of meet up with each other and sort of the way they... Uh, they sort of rib each other or insult each other um, gets us sort of how they, uh, oh, it's a great way to let us know how they feel about each other and sort of 
let us know that there's some some history there. Um, again, in uh, you, you know, you, you do that very quickly. So um, you want to talk a little bit about how you sort of decided how to have these these characters sort of uh, you know rib each other, take uh, verbal jabs at each other. Sure. Um, so there's a couple things going on there. I'll try and touch on them <laughs> briefly because I, I ramble. Um, but uh, one of the things I set out to do with this book. Um, I told myself that if I was going to write a sequel, that I really, really wanted to make it a point to not do the same thing twice. Um, so much as I can, you know, within the bounds of like what I consider a dead end kids book. Um, so in the first volume, we've got a group of kids, Ben, Murphy, Tank, and Amanda, who are best friends. They're, they're the, the kids from Stand By Me. They're all going through some stuff at home. They all have one another to lean on and, and take care of each other. And, you know, they don't fix each other, but they're there for each other. In volume two in the suburban job, it's a total inversion of that model. Um, these are three kids who grew up together. 9-11 happened. They, they got their different trauma points over the years that followed, and they've fallen out over the years, and they're not friends. And there's, there's a page about halfway through the book. It's one of my favorite sequences that I've ever written. Nana drew it beautifully. Um, the narration has is, is got like a meta aspect to it, but it's a sort of a thesis for what the book is. It's, it's not about kids who are best friends going through something. It's about kids who barely know each other anymore, getting thrust into a situation and having to get past their own bullcrap to figure out how to survive this situation. So it's a total kind of flip of, of what we did with the first volume. Um, and I wanted that to feel real, like, you know, that these people had a shared history, that they had actual sort of qualms with one another, um, and that it wasn't so healed over, that it was still pretty raw. So the scene you're talking about towards the end of the book, when they're kind of ribbing one another, and, and honestly, they're, they're verbally assaulting one another a little bit, um, is is sort of an efficient way to, to present the idea of backstory, um, have them kind of make little comments about things in the back in the past like um tori says she's going to kick brian's ass and then brian says that yeah she'd have to stick around long enough to to do it and and like that gives you a real sense of like where their mindsets are with one another and like the, the issues that they have so this is this is very much like a uh, like a time bomb type situation like that this is going to explode at some point it's going to go it's go very poorly um and then in the the end of that scene is like what kicks the book off and and you know then the clock's just ticking from there sure so uh we we we've talked a lot about story um i want to talk a little bit about the 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 story but in the the art aspect um it looks like this is the same team coming back from from DEK1 for 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 the suburban job is that correct yep Got so the whole team back together. So you guys had a had a you know sort. I'm assuming the you know working through those those issues for for the first set and then doing these. You guys um, sort of streamlined a lot of it. But I'm looking at page uh, 14 right now. Um, it's it's in a school. There, there's three characters. Um, and, and they're passing each other. And I don't want to talk about it too much because I, I think the, you know, we really want the, the, the reader to, to, uh, to enjoy this, but, uh, like, uh, do, do you know the page I'm talking about? Yeah, that's, that's the one I was talking about with the sort of like mission statement of the book kind of narration. 
Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, how much did, uh, how much did the artist bring to the design here? Um, if, if you can remember that. Uh, honestly, like this is one of the rare pages where I did a lot of directing, um, okay. top to bottom, like, uh, like I just had a sequence in mind, um, where like this, this will get a little spoiler. It's hard to talk about it without being that way, but the idea was, you know, we wanted to create sort of a false setup in the first half of the book where you expect it to be like Dead End Kids 1 if, if you read it. And if not, like, it wouldn't matter. And it's just the way the story's going. But if you read Volume 1 and then you see this page, um, you know, about halfway through, your expectations get subverted in the, in the bottom half of the page. Mm-hmm. And then the narration really drives home, like, what the situation is. Um, and, and because this was such, sort of, to my mind, such an integral page, like, it took a lot of care to make sure that it was blocked out really specifically and, like, for a very specific effect. Um, Nanad took the script and one pass nailed the, the layouts and, and the sequence and even, you know, just kind of, added his own little flourishes with the angles and, and kind of the, the, the camera moving back forth. I mean, he really took it to a new place. It's just, unfortunately for your question, one of the few pages that I, I specifically went for like my direction versus, you know, letting Nanad do his own thing. Like I do on, on most of the pages. No, but it's, it's, uh, it, it actually makes a lot of sense that, uh, you know, that it, it would be, you know, on occasion when you're writing something, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, you know, you, you have a, you generally, you might give like an idea or a suggestion, but every once in a while, uh, it probably, uh, an idea or a, a page design just comes to you in, in the spur of the moment and everything works out. So you, you know, you do want to sort of direct that, that one, um, and with it being a collaborative effort, um, you know, every once in a while, if as the writer, if, you know, the, the visuals come to you, um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the, the working relationship you guys have, it's, it's probably not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what, now that I've, I've got some years under my belt and, and have done enough projects with enough different artists and, and projects with artists second and third times, um, I've sort of, started to develop a flexibility um, that that is um, uh, writers always talk about sort of writing for the artist and and like I never quite understood that until I had to start doing it um, mm-hmm. so like with Nanad I've worked with him he was he drew the very first story I ever ever wrote uh, the last story that ended up in grief he, he drew half of grief he did dead end kids doing this he's the, we've done all kinds of short stories for for the holidays and stuff I mean I've worked with him probably 200 or 300 pages at this point. Um, so he's by far my, my most frequent collaborator. And, and now we know what each other's sort of preferences are and, and storytelling strengths. Um, so I'll, I, I've gotten a lot looser with what I send over to him. And, and it's, it's a lot more conversational. Like there, we have long email threads where we sort of max out the number of Gmail emails we can do and like have to go to two and, and three threads. Um, but it's really, it's, it's a conversation um, at this point. So like I script fairly lightly for him, unless it's a page like the one we're talking about uh, with Chris Mad, who did the art for No Heroin. He really, really wanted me to block out everything um as much as i could um especially the action um and that's just his preference you know it's what he likes he likes to to his idea as of where his 
role in the food chain of, of the creative processes to, to bring the script to life. And, you know, it, it by nature has to be a little more specific. Uh, I'm working with another artist who I can't name right now because the project's not announced, but he wants a mix. Um, you know, for action scenes, he wants like a Marvel style script. And it's kind of what's happening in the scene and like where it needs to end to move the story forward. And then on, you know, sort of more talking head uh, sort of intimate moments, he wants uh, more full scripts. Uh, so it's it's just about kind of adapting and, you know, giving um, giving your collaborator the tool they need um, to, to do their part of the job, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. Cool. So I, I want to ask you a question, sort of, uh, you know, a writer overall. Um, so you had mentioned earlier that you were working on No Heroin and sort of you had given the, the you know, the, the verbal maybe uh, to, to doing uh, DEK2. Um, so were, as, was that the first time that you were maybe juggling sort of like two projects at the same time in different sort of statuses, you know, no heroin being a little bit further along and, and this sort of being in the developmental stages? Um, no, no, I've actually never not been doing that uh, with the exception of grief, uh, but even sort of grief because it's a short story collection and I was constantly writing a new story, sending it off to the, the artist or the colorist of the letter, and then starting on the next one and kind of like cycling through until the last story is written. So like it, from the time I had two scripts at, at once, I've been doing it. Um, and and I technically wrote No Heroin, at least part of it, before I wrote Dead End Kids. Um, okay. So um, it goes back that far with two big projects. Um, I got, I was getting ready to write Dead End Kids and then, Chris and I had a talk at a convention um, about doing a project together someday and my mind kind of ran away with it. And I wrote the first script for No Heroin before I wrote Dead End Kids and then returned to No Heroin and finished writing that after Dead End Kids. Um, So it's, I don't know, I feel like I'm constantly juggling things. And and these days I am, I mean, uh, Dead End Kids is is in production right now. We'll we'll wrap on it in, in about a month and a half. Um, the project after that for next summer that's not announced yet, the art starts on that very soon. So that's just done being written. Um, I have pitches with two of the bigger companies. Um, they asked me to pitch after No Heroin took off. Um, and you know, they could come back to me any day with, with, a, with a green light on some of those projects. And then I'll be you know, juggling two more projects or one more project or no more projects. Um, but uh, so generally, like I've never not been juggling, but I'm also somebody who likes to keep busy, um, and, and I'm a I'm a pretty like avid planner. Um, like I I already know what my next five books are gonna be. Like so, like when one's done or when one moves from the writing phase to the the production phase, I start writing the next, and I kind of like roll things over to stay busy and stay ahead and you know, give myself a really long runway to, to make sure that these books are, are done on time and that like I have time to, to make them the best books they are. But that's just how I work. Yeah. So actually that's going to lead into to a question I, 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 was, I had for you. One of the things that sort of uh, I, I, I get from you is that, that you're, you, that you're, you know, you're a hustler. Um, you're, you, you're very organized. I, I, for, for this interview here on this podcast you know you sent me the email um saying that this was coming up um would i be interested in in interviewing you i said yes 
I got like a calendar. I picked my time slot. I wrote you back. So this is the time slot I want. And then shortly after that, the preview um, PDF came to me. So uh, I can tell that you're very organized from that. So I guess maybe sort of like a, a process question, sort of like the, the business of, uh, you know, being an indie creator, trying to, to get on podcasts, trying to get people to see your books. Do you have a lot of like automated systems or are you sort of, uh, you know, as handling these as, the, as they come in? Um, so I'm, you know, this is essentially my third sort of press tour for a book in the last um, year and a half, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, uh, let me back up. For, for my day job, I work at um, a lending company, uh, sort of a, an online lending company called Stilt. Uh, we do loans for for in, immigrants and visa holders and, and sort of underserved communities who have a hard time getting loans because they don't have uh, robust American credit histories. Uh, and and in that business, I am the the marketing person. Uh, and it's a it's a small technology startup, so it's you know I do a lot. I do every angle of marketing you can imagine. It's a lot of experimenting, a lot of data collection, a lot of kind of uh, taking risks uh, with with large sums of money to see like what works. Um, and I try to use as much of that transferable knowledge as I can in comics. And one of the big things that I do, and this is kind of like a general tip for any job if you can do it, is uh, build what are called robots, not not actual robots, but this this idea that if you can figure out how to do something and figure out like what that process is, then you can start using tools to kind of automate parts of it. Um, okay. And with the the workflow you were just describing about sending out the emails, um, you know, I, I had done the work, like I had collected the contacts, I had built the relationships with you and the other podcasters. Um, I I knew sort of what the how to go about talking about you know scheduling. I knew that I would need to get you guys sort of the, the preview. Um, so like I just looked for existing tools that I could kind of hack together to to make an automated workflow that like took most of the work out of it. Um, so I use uh, an email app called Gmas. It's like eight bucks a month, and I use it every day for lots of things. So it's definitely worth it. Um, but it's just an automated email thing that you know works with spreadsheets. Um, I used an app called Calendly, Calendly, uh, with uh, for the scheduling, and that was just a link I dropped into the automated email. Um, Calendly lets you send a, a, an automated follow-up email when when somebody sets up a, a calendar, uh, and then I just use that to deliver the PDF. PDF was in Dropbox, um, so like that was a really easy robot for me to build because I was already using most of the tools and just kind of had to imagine how to get them together, and it saved me hours. Like, mm-hmm dozens of emails and hours and like, you know, little things like Calendly, like letting me block out specific times, you know, and letting you guys pick those times was was super useful because it it reduced the amount of conversation by a bunch. Um, And and I could do that because I've talked to you before and like, I know you and and like, I would feel comfortable. I wouldn't do that to like somebody I'd never met before Mm -hmm. uh, because it can come off kind of cold, but like, clearly you recognize it as a, as a workflow and, and just like a, a time saver. Um, so like, it's just, it's about doing stuff like that. And I do stuff like that for comics too. Um, so some of it's like not automated, like with a capital A, but like I have Nanad put the 
you know, high res colored pages into a, a Google Drive folder. And then I send Sean the, the link to letter them. And, and in that same folder is the script. Um, rather than me downloading the files, uploading them myself, and then sending Sean the, the thing, Nanad rather than sending them to me, just puts them into the folder and cuts a step out. And like, as, as much as you can reduce the workflow, is it's just gonna save you time and, and keep things organized. Um, but, but it is important to go through the workflows manually, like to make the mistakes and learn like what the shortcuts are. Um, unless somebody else can tell you what they are, like I'm doing right now, because that's always better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really important. Like, Time is really a valuable asset in making comics, especially if you want to make comics quickly and be able to get them done. Um, I don't know, like I just, I'm an incredibly efficient person. Like that, that sounds braggy and, and kind of douchey and it's, it's not meant to be, but like, I just want to make comics and whatever I can do to make that easier for myself and whatever I can do to make that happen faster is it's, I'm going to figure that out as, as many times as I can because I just want to keep making comics. I want to keep putting them out there for people to read. Yeah, I actually, I was going to ask you, I was like, you know, automating these systems uh, and, and reducing the amount of time that you would have to sort of spend on these administrative tasks probably allows you to sit down and block out a, a, a huge chunk of your day or whenever you can find a chunk of time to, to dedicate that to creative processes like writing, you know, editing, outlining stories. So yeah, I, I, I was... I was, I was wondering about that, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so returning to the suburban job, uh, what are the plans as far as like, uh, the, you know, the, the, the release schedule, the number of issues, like when we can start, uh, looking for this in previews, telling, telling comic shops that, that we want, uh, you know, them to pre-order us copies because, you know, pre-ordering a book like this is, is very important. I'm glad you said that because I always have to take out my soapbox and, and remind people. Um, so we're recording this a little bit in advance. Um, so by the time this is out, uh, all this information will be out there so we can talk about everything. Um, Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job is a four-issue miniseries. It'll start releasing in January of 2021, which seems so far away still, but it's, it'll come up really quick. Um, that means it'll be the first issue will be in previews in November. Uh, so you can go into any comic shop anywhere in the world uh, and say you want the new Dead End Kids book, you want the new Frank Gogol book, you want Dead End Kids 2, you want the Suburban Job. Um, I think I've got enough uh, name notoriety with most retailers after Dead End Kids and No Heroin that most of that should get you most of the way to where you need to be. And just tell me you want the book. Um, if you follow me on social media, I'll, I'll post the 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 previews code once we have it uh, the last week in October and, and all that stuff too. And I'll, I'll be reminding people and doing more podcasts and stuff like that. But you know, four issues, um, it's a little bit bigger than the first volume. Uh, it's got a couple extra pages per issue. I want to really give people the most bang for their buck. Um, what else? What else? There, there's so much. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we, we got the regular team back together. Uh, the, the, the original team, I should say. So Nanette Savitakanen is on art and colors. Sean Reinhardt is on letters. Chris Mad, my collaborator from No Heroin, is back to do the covers. Uh, we've got four incredible covers in the same sort of deco of the original series with the white band and the really great design that Nanad and I came up with. Um, <clears throat> so if you collect the first series, the series will fit in really well aesthetically. Um, 
we're going to do some stuff with incentive covers for retailers. Uh, we, we did, we experimented with that with no heroin and it was a really big success. So we want to do more of that because people asked for more of it. Uh, so every issue will have a one in five incentive. That means uh, for every five a retailer buys, they can order one of the incentive cover. Uh, so it'll be a one in five cover by Ryan Kincaid, who's done, uh, he did a no heroin cover for us. He's done some really great stuff for DC recently. Uh, if you don't follow Ryan on Instagram or anything like that, absolutely do. He's, he's phenomenal, but he's going to be doing one in five covers for every issue. Uh, those four covers are one large connecting image. If you get all four of them, which is pretty cool. I just saw the, the final version of all four together uh, yesterday morning and it looks great. It's really, really awesome. Colors are fantastic. Um, and in addition to that, we'll have a one in 10 incentive cover. So for every 10 shop orders, they can order one of the one in 10 incentive. Uh, by Ben Templesmith. For anyone who's been following my, I guess I can say career now, but for anyone who's been following me from book to book, uh, Ben's done a cover for every book I've ever done. Uh, so it's sort of tradition at this point. Um, and he has turned out a, a really, really gorgeous uh, cover for this incentive. Um, and I'm really excited for people to, to be able to see it. Um, I think I think that's that's the the long and short of uh, everything. Yeah, uh, for for anyone who read the first series, more of the same, uh, but yeah, fresh. Uh, for anyone who didn't read the first series, this is a, a fresh start, so you don't really need to check out the first series if you don't want to. If you do, the trade came out a couple of months ago. Uh, it's Ten bucks. I worked really hard to keep it nice and cheap for everybody. Um, if you're a collector, we got a lot of great covers. Uh, we have five retail partners who are each going to put out a set of covers uh, for every issue, which uh, the art on that is starting to roll in. And um, I can't say anything about that yet, but if you're, if you're a variant guy or gal, or you like really great art, there's some really cool stuff in the pipe for that too. Very cool. Well, I guess if we, we learned anything from DEK one and no heroin, uh, pre-ordering and getting this in your, in your box would be the best, uh, best course of action because it, going in on release day and expecting a, a loose copy to be there, you, you might be, you might be out of, out of luck. Yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. If this sounds like a book you're interested in, even if it's not this book, if it's, if it's uh, scouts honor from David Pepos over at aftershock, which just got announced or, or any of the other great indie books that are coming out right now. Um, if you hear about a book you like, definitely, tell your retailer that you want the book. It's, it's uh, pre-ordering is the backbone of our industry. Um, it, it lets your, pre your bleh, it lets your retailer know how many copies to order. It also puts books on their radar and helps mm -hmm. order more. They, they, they can't pay attention to everything. It's just, it's an impossible job. So, you know, if you can throw them a little help and say, Hey, this book looks pretty good. I'm interested. That might help them too. Um, and it's like a 99% chance you're going to get it. Like that's, that's the closest to a guarantee that, you know, you can get the book you want because you know, like Matt just said, it, if you, you you roll the dice and go in on uh, you know release day for an indie book, there's a good chance your shop probably didn't order it because you didn't ask them to. Mm -hmm. But also that if you if it's on your radar, it's on somebody else's too. And if you're not the first person there, you might be beat. Uh, so I pre-order everything. You know, I pick and choose what I like, and I order the stuff I'm super interested into. And everybody else should do that too. And you know what? I have one time in my life not gotten a book I pre-ordered because it got damaged. Otherwise, I would have gotten it. So I have like essentially a hundred percent success rate pre-ordering books I wanted. The books I've tried to get that I didn't realize I wanted to pre-order never got them. So if you want to roll the dice, 
I wouldn't. I, I agree. Well, um, so uh, I think we're getting close to wrapping up here. Um, ho- uh, so I know that like 2020, uh, COVID, you know, outbreak, uh, you know, quarantining, um, you know, the, the, the con schedule, the going to the shop schedule for, for signing is, is a little bit up in the air. Are you trying to, 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 to work on that or are you just sort of playing that by ear? Uh, I made the call pretty early on to, to say no to cons. Um, mm-hmm. I did two early this year. I did a wizard world in Portland and then I did C2E2 and, and just reading the room in C2E2 and like hearing the early news about, about COVID. I just, it didn't seem smart. Um, so I, I pulled out of, uh, Emerald city before it got canceled and everything else kind of felt like dominoes. And I, there's just no sense in risking your life like or anyone else's your, your grandma's your your son's like i i don't know i just read that la comic con is doing an in-person event in december and that just yeah it, it, it's not a good idea yeah i agree with you but uh so yeah i am uh i am quarantining i'm staying home i'm not flying i'm not driving as much as i can um, and I think that's the right move. Uh, but I'm also taking it as kind of a challenge uh, to to grow as as a creator and, and for lack of a better word, public figure. Like it's it's put me in a position where I have to figure out how to get in front of people without being in front of people, literally. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really led me to be more creative about how I use you know podcast interviews, how I interact with retailers, how many retailers I'm interacting with anymore, how I promote the books. And honestly, like it's just the, the whole situation has put a whole bunch of new tools in my box and the, the world may go back to something resembling the way it used to be. Uh, and I'll just be extra equipped when the time comes to to do in-person and not in-person and stuff like that. I've got, I've built a really good workflow for exa- for example, for having retailers send me books to sign for their customers um which has been really great a lot of retailers have taken advantage of it and it's it's kind of down to to a science at this point um and it's a way for me to take care of readers and and and, you know do something a little special for them while building a relationship with the retailer um and and i think it's kind of something creative that makes up for the lack of in-store signings right now also allows me to do signings for stores I wouldn't normally be able to get to like in the middle of Montana where it would be extremely expensive for me to fly to just for a signing. Sure. Um, and, and moving forward, I'll have the, these, these new readers who know my name and have read my books and who, who have you know, gotten a special thing that I've signed for them um, and gone out of my way. And they'll, they'll remember that and appreciate that. And the retailers will too. And, and you know, that's just, it's a silver lining and, and like, that's what 2020 is for me. It's, it's all about finding the silver linings. Uh, the world sucks. It's on fire. It's literally on fire where I live. Um, and, and, you know, people are sick and dying and, you know, you gotta, you gotta take the small wins and the wins that you can scrape together. And, and I'm just trying to do as much of that as I can and try and stay positive and productive and, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic, but it's, it's hard some days. I, I hear you, but it sounds like you have the the, the right uh, attitude about it. Um, as we close up, uh, there's going to be a lot of news coming from you very soon. So could you let folks know the best way to, to keep up and, and follow you online? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the very best way to, to keep up with me is uh, I run a newsletter. It goes out twice a month. Uh, I just finished writing the next one 
that'll come out before this, uh, right before we started talking. Uh, but it is sort of a distilled sort of insider's look into what I've got going on. Uh, everything I talk about on Facebook and Twitter and publicly ends up in there, but I usually do more exclusive first looks at things um, and, and kind of really just kind of make it the one-stop shop for all the news that people need to know about what I've got going on. I was talking about dead end kids too in there last year, I think like, I mean, so it's, it's pretty open and honest. Um, and it's also got no algorithm attached to it. So if you subscribe to it, you'll never miss it. Um, and you can unsubscribe too. Like it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's definitely the best option. Um, for people who don't want to give out their email till they understand that I've, I've got Twitter. It's, uh, at Frank Gogol. I've got Instagram. It's at Frank Gogol. I have a Facebook. Um, I generally keep it open to the public for people who want to connect, uh, fans or, or fellow creators who, who want to pick my brain. Like I'm always open to that. It's just facebook.com slash Frank Ogle. Everything's Frank Ogle. I got really, I got really lucky. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely suggest the, uh, the newsletter. There's links to it on pretty much everything uh, in my Twitter bio, in my Instagram bio. Um, I, I post on Facebook all the time. Um, but uh, whatever people are comfortable with, I try to you know have as many opportunities to connect with people as possible, and, and those are definitely the big ones. Awesome. Well, we're going to link to all of your social media and the, the show notes to, to the episode. And as news of uh, the suburban job rolls out, we're certainly going to share that for, for everybody on, on our social media. But uh, Frank, it was really great uh, catching up with you. I'm really excited about uh, jumping back into the DEK universe. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun reading the, the, the preview copy you gave me and, and catching up with you. Um, so I want to thank you uh, for, for being on. But, uh, thank you so much for having me. I think I, I said this the last two times and I say it every time and I mean it. Um, you, you podcasters and, and then the guys who do their YouTubes, like you guys give me a platform to talk about my stuff and, and it's time out of your day. Like I'm just sitting in my office talking to a microphone. You're going to edit this and, and promote it and, and, you know, do all the hard work. And I, and I so appreciate that. Like it's, it's a huge part of my success and any successes I will have is, is you guys giving me the opportunity to talk about the books so people can know about them. So, so thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate it. And uh, actually, it's it's twofold because having you on um, as a creator myself, I'm able to sort of learn uh, new tools and tricks. So, uh, you know, for as much as you uh, appreciate coming on a podcast. We appreciate you having on coming on a podcast and, and, and giving us an insight into the creative process. Happy to help. Awesome. All right. So uh, for anybody listening, if you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we'd really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on social media. Twitter is Construct Compod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod. Facebook and YouTube is Constructing Comics. And if you want to, uh, if you could check out the Dino Thrashers Kickstarter, that is a Kickstarter that I am publishing with Noah uh, on art, who is normally the co-host of this podcast. So we really appreciate it. Links to that in the show notes as well. But everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, be nice, be safe to each other, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you.